Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison and I am joined in a very special, heartwarming episode of the week on Wednesday <laughs> weekend wrap by the great, the glorious Van Batum, who is clutching our dog. He's so cute. So desperate for human warmth and attention. And Van, of course, human warmth and attention is finally what Australia is getting on the international stage. I know. It, it is just crazy. People are organically sharing pictures of Penny Wong, the foreign minister at her various diplomatic events, smiling, being happy, people like looking excited to see her. And also we're getting this constant stream of Anthony Albanese apparently charming the pants off the the leaders of the other liberal democratic states of the West. A hilarious photo yesterday a day of um, Albanese and his partner Jody with um, Macron and Mrs. Macron. Yeah. And all having a big laugh. Having a great time. And this is in addition to the photo of Albanese uh, and Penny Wong sharing jokes with Joe Biden and it just looks like the world is sort of relieved that Australia's back. Do you get a very yeah. strong sense of that? Australia's back. I think it's. I think that's a really uh, good way of putting it. Australia is back on the international stage. Oh, your back. photos of Albo with Jacinda Ardern and not forcing her to hug him either. <laughs> it was quite genuine from the two Labor leaders. Probably a bit more in common than uh, Jacinda Ardern and Scott Morrison just saying. Well, even uh, Justin Trudeau uh, called him Tony. And, of course, insiders had a big discussion this morning about, uh, you know, w- were they getting his name wrong? And somebody pointed out, well, actually, in a lot of places, Tony is short for Anthony. I had an <laughs> uncle who was called Tony for that reason. Tony is the short version of, of Anthony. But um, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. I, it feels like we're part of the world again. But it makes me just think, what the hell were the Liberals doing for 10 years? I mean, Mm. I I think we all remember how absolutely excruciating the Abbott years were. I mean, that was a terrible, every time he met a world leader, you just sat there in like a sort of rictus of cringe is the only way I could possibly describe it. And, I mean, Turnbull was perfectly charming. I mean, he is perfectly charming, a neoliberal, but perfectly charming. Um, But we didn't have that same kind of impact. You know, we negotiated bad trade deals and I know you're going to talk about those a bit more. But Morrison is just this sort of gurning bully I think everybody was quite at pains to avoid. Yeah, and look, the footage of the Morrison era where he's sort of, you know, on a stage surrounded by world leaders yet somehow very much alone (laughs) looking for someone to shake his hand I think was probably the most uh, iconic uh, international visit by Morrison uh, on, the, on the global stage. It'd be like me going to a Young Liberals cocktail party, you know what I yeah, mean? Like sort of I would not expect anyone to shake my hand. And look, and, and there are some real uh, tangible outcomes and benefits, right? So we've seen the Pacific Nations say that they, they won't allow uh, more expansionism of China uh, as a result of their engagement with each other and engaging now with Penny Wong in Australia. Uh, we've seen France, President Macron was asked, should Anthony Albanese apologise on behalf of Australia? And Macron say, Anthony Albanese is not responsible for the for the mistakes of the past. We're moving forward now. Uh, we've seen NATO 
uh, say that yes, they they do have uh, concerns about uh, militarization of China and, and some of its positioning around Taiwan and the Pacific more generally. We watched a great <laughs> explainer about Taiwan, by the way. Last night, Ben and I went on yeah. a Saturday night John Oliver binge. <laughs> That's what we like to do. The the wild social rebels that we are wrap ourselves in the quilt, hug the dog, eat some Tony's chocolate chocolate, and and watch uh, John Oliver episode. Episodes. But John Oliver has an excellent episode on Taiwan that we thoroughly recommend everybody watch. Yeah, because it's it, it is really interesting to see the big shifts. You know, it's only been six weeks or so since Labor uh, became the Commonwealth government in Australia, and these big shifts and international outcomes that are being achieved. You know, yes, the 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 photos are nice, and it looks like the relationships are better. But really, the the it's when the rubber hits the road around mm. things like security, trade, uh, access to ports, access to to um, uh, various trade routes, and so on, that international relations really comes into its own. Yeah, refugee bipartisanship, all of those things. All of those things, and that's what we're actually seeing happen very very quickly. A real uh, reversion to. Australia as a true middle power in the Pacific and in the world. And, of course, one of the most telling things is the EU is now willing to restart negotiations on a free trade agreement, which, of course, Van, you pointed out to me just before we started recording that New Zealand has just done a deal with the EU. Yes, this was mentioned in the British press that for all of the, like, lying propagandistic nonsense about Brexit and take back control and negotiate the trade deals we want. Somebody made the point that Britain could have had a trade deal with New Zealand if they had have stayed in the EU. Yeah, absolutely. And while (coughs) Morrison and Johnson did do a trade deal uh, between England and the UK, people might remember that that seemed to equate to pretty much us swapping Tim Tams for penguin biscuits um, which, I mean, I've never had a penguin biscuit. I've had a penguin biscuit and they're like a sub-Tim Tam. <laughs> so so hardly hardly the big, uh, you know, breakthrough in trade relations that perhaps the EU deal might be. And we should remember too, you know, you and I have been critical of some of the trade deals that have been struck. Super critical, past. especially the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, which, you know, was about shipping in labour from China that was likely to be ununionized and yeah. not properly trained. And obviously our comrades in the ETU, the Electrical Trades Union, were very alarmed at the difference in training and familiarity uh, between uh, Chinese electrical workers and Australian electrical workers working off like different systems, different coloured wire, you know, various dangers well, inherent in that. I mean, I'll never forget the National Secretary of the uh, Electrical Trade Union uh telling a, a meeting of people who were having a discussion about the, the trade agreement that the the base wire colour uh, in China is the same colour as a high voltage wire in Australia. So the wire that you would cut because it has no current is actually a high voltage wire here in Australia and that could lead to deaths, fires, multiple deaths, you know, and the idea that you would just allow people to transition from from one system to another without further training was really quite dangerous. Yes, especially for the workers who yeah. would be brought in with the wire cutters. So it was a very um, 
a very fraught agreement, that one. And, of course, we've seen since that was signed, China impose various tariffs in breach of that agreement, Australia having no recourse to do anything about that. Andrew Robb, the Liberal Cabinet Minister who, as Trade Minister, signed the agreement, of course, left the parliament, I think, within a year and went off to work for Chinese government-affiliated company. Well, yeah, well within a year. I think it was within a matter of weeks. What an amazing coincidence. (laughs) I mean, that was just a stroke of good fortune, given he just signed the secret... Secret yeah. trade deal because they don't they didn't let people into the room to see how that was being negotiated and I guess they were just really impressed with his work and and of course Van that issue of secrecy is one of the reasons why the EU was not prepared to sign onto a trade deal with Australia because under the Morrison government trade deals were negotiated by corporate lawyers corporate lawyers uh, and some government lawyers. Uh, to to determine what the provisions would be, who would get what, and how the how the pie would be divided. Now in the EU, they have a very different approach to trade. In fact, so much so that I'm happy to say that I actually attended a dinner at one point with the EU trade commissioner and a range of civil society. He's so fancy, my Ben. <coughs> He's so fancy. A range of civil society organisations to discuss how we were being engaged with by the Liberal government at the time on issues around trade. And, of course, while, uh, you know, some people, like people from the AFR, were more than happy to have a secret agreement and put all the trust and faith in the uh, Liberal government, there were many civil society organisations, the union movement among them, who would have liked a little more transparency. A little more transparency. A little more involvement. Sort of really important when it comes to human rights, labour rights and the sustainability of the environment, don't you think? Not only do I think that, the EU thinks that so much so that they, in the end... Uh, stopped negotiating with the Morrison government around a trade deal. Now, I think it's incredibly telling that one of the largest trading blocks, largest economic groupings in the world. With the most desirable products. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> there are some very desirable products. That there are some Europe. really desirable products in the EU. I'm just going to say it out But it's also a desirable market for Australian products. Yeah. Course, you know, uh, we, we now have an opportunity to negotiate an agreement because the EU is prepared under a Labor government to restart that process. Huge potential, you know, not only just in raw trade terms, but also in how we do trade in this country, the kind of change to process to transparency to values driven trade arrangement. Such I've got to say, like China's not a democracy. Like I, <laughs> like I have spent a lot of time in China. And, you know, obviously Chinese people are great. There are, you know, there's beauty and wonder in every community in the world. But let's be very honest, like it's a horrific totalitarian autocracy. And from my own experiences in China, like having that 1984 experience, and because I, I went to some pretty like off the beaten track places in China as well yeah. with video screens blasting propaganda 24 hours a day about the glories of the Chinese Communist Party. Like it, it's not, I wouldn't say that a system of government that actually clamps down on democracy is what we'd describe as values aligned. And look, Penny Wong made the point this week because it's uh, uh, the anniversary, it was the anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong uh, that, China needs to respect 
the uh, the the independence of Hong Kong, uh, the the systems of democracy in Hong Kong, and you know it was it was good to see such a strong statement from an Australian government about the importance of democracy uh, and and allowing the autonomy and self determination of peoples. Uh, of course, China was not very happy with that statement from from what I could gather. And look, there's no question that Australia is between a rock and a hard place when it comes to China. It is our largest trading partner. Uh, and it's really, I think, incumbent on us to try and diversify what we do in this country so that we're not so reliant on trade income from China, from selling them coal and iron ore and raw materials. To a country that interns ethnic minorities. And often... You know, we talk about modern slavery and modern slavery legislation in this country and around the West. Primarily, we have to do that because of uh, some of the things that happen in some parts of China, but also North Korea. Uh, we know in Cambodia, Bangladesh, there are various hotspots of modern slavery. I've been to North Korea too. Full disclosure, <laughs> very weird. And it's and it's incumbent on us to realise that you know if we're shipping raw materials. Uh, and gaining quite significant amounts of national income uh, f- from that, that there will be a consequence for people who are oppressed to make the things that we then buy. So this diversification of trading partners, diversification of what we do, how we manufacture things, it's it's a really positive sign. And, and I think, you know, talking of different approaches and new ways of doing things, Van, I want to also talk today about the per capita report that came out this week, uh, which was looking at the NDIS and the the use of contracting in the NDIS. Mm. Uh, it's a shocking report. It's about 55 pages long and you think, am I really going to read a 55-page think tank report on a Sunday morning? And I did Yeah, because it's really very disturbing. Well, I think... I totally agree with you because I think the 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 notion that we all have about the NDIS is that there's this, all this money and there'll be all these workers being paid properly to deliver services to Australians with disabilities uh, and that there's a national disability uh, insurance agency, a government agency that oversees it and it'll all be properly regulated. That's not happening. No, and the report makes it really clear that that's not what's happening. Yeah, very simple, very accessible. If you are one of the thousands and thousands of Australians engaging with the NDIS who is frustrated with how that system is not working for you, I seriously recommend a read of it because some of the, the issues about quality in the workforce and the fact that the platforms just abrogate any responsibility to their workforce, leaving people in really insecure circumstances where they're unable of providing quality care as workers is really, it's really confronting. And I think the one of the telling things for me was that there's really sort of four systems um, at play in the NDIS and, and the, the traditional system, which is kind of the one I described at the start that we would think of as being a, a traditional service provider, uh, an organisation that employs people, it's registered, uh, you know, everybody gets paid an award wage or above, everybody gets super, everybody gets trained, there are standards and quality that have to be reported on. 
Then there are contractors, which could be, you know, it could be a physio, it could be somebody who's registered with a different professional body, but isn't necessarily registered with the NDIA. Uh, you know, they run their own practice, a bit like a GP, that kind of a setup. Uh, then there's uh, employment contracting platforms and full disclosure, I've done some work with HireUp, which is an employment contracting, uh, an employment platform. It's not a contracting platform where people are employed, usually casual, but sometimes part-time. Uh, people get paid award. Uh, they get trained. There's It's registered with the NDIS. Then there's the contracting platforms, the straight up and down Uber style just connecting people with a with a, a a worker, take no responsibility, and and that's really where the report kind of comes into its own. Yeah, those they, uh, more than one person has described that particular arrangement as cowboy operations. Yeah, and I know that Bill Shorten has used the term cowboy. There's an expert who they speak to in the per capita report that talks about it in those terms as well. And what's really chilling about the per capita report are actually the testimonies yeah. from individuals who are caught up in the system and they really stick with you. Like there was um, a discussion of a woman who was brought in as a care worker for a child with autism and, you know, one of the the things that we know about uh, various kinds of disability care, that discipline and uh, scheduling and regularity is everything in terms of building trust and working with routines and, you know, maximising home efficiencies and things like that. And this worker developed a really close relationship with this child, like an incredible bond yeah. with the two of them. And the parents offered to employ the worker for $43 an hour when the worker was previously with an employer who paid them $33 an hour. And, of course, the worker thought this was great, like that they would be receiving more money. But, of course, that's not how those things work out. And the worker was obliged now that they were an independent contractor to pay their own insurance and to, you know, do all of this business admin and obviously to pay themselves super and the rest of it and ended up earning less working for the supposedly higher amount per hour than they did when they were employed. And, of course, they've asked the parents who are now paying this money through them as an independent contractor for a raise and have not got it, and it has undermined the relationship of the worker and the child. So, I mean, it's things like that. There are a number of stories like that. There's the worker who's with a client and the client starts shoplifting when they're out together and she's aware of it and trying to say to the client, look, that's inappropriate, You actually that's a criminal offence. And she has nowhere, because she's employed through a platform, she has nowhere to go. There's no HR, there's no mediation, there's just her. And she says in the testimony that she literally does not know what to do. Is she obliged to report the criminal activity to the police, she doesn't know, and no one is there to help her despite the fact that she's literally in a compromised situation herself where she could be charged as an accessory. Yeah, and, I mean, we, we've talked about the NDIS a lot on on the week on Wednesday because it is such an important part of, I guess, the reforms that Australia has undertaken in the last decade and and will continue to be, you know, and and I think this report mentions too, you know, that that there's something like two jobs created for every direct job in the the, uh, NDIS. There's $2.25 for every dollar that's invested. You know, it's it's a huge and growing part of 
our social and economic fabric. And to see the kind of influx of uh, foreign private equity ripping money out of the system, uh, and the report is pretty scathing. There's there's a the, it's pretty scathing of of Mabel, which is one of the contracting platforms that is set up a basically a bridging loan system. That's this what the is outrageous. It. This is so bad. So can you explain how this works to people? Because I don't think many people I wasn't aware of just how disgusting and gross this is. So the basic premise of how the contracting platforms work is that they will charge a percentage of what the worker charges the person uh, uh, who's on the NDIS. So quite aside from having to pay their own taxes, their own super, which, by the way, less than 2% of people who are contracting are actually contributing to super. That's a whole other issue we'll talk about. But um, their insurances, uh, their own travel, all their own expenses. So in actual fact, they're not getting a higher rate like you've described. They're not getting a higher rate. They also then have to pay a fee to use the platform, right? So they pay a fee out of their out of their um, payment. Now, what sometimes happens is that the client will, um, you know, not sign off on the invoice straight away, or there'll be a delay in issuing the invoice, or maybe the platform has had a temporary outage and has delayed the issue of the, of the invoice. So there's some delay. Now, if you're a, if you're a disability support worker, and roughly one in five rely on platform uh, contracting work uh, at, for more than half their income. That's what the report spells out as well. So roughly. 20% of people in the sector rely on a platform for half their income or more. So if you need that money to pay your rent or whatever it is, and remember, most people, you know, half their income goes on rent or mortgage payments. So they they need the money. There's a delay in getting it. So what has the Mabel, the platform, done? <clears throat> it has set up a system where you can get a bridging loan. Essentially, a wholly owned subsidiary of the platform will lend you the money for a flat fee. So it's not a it's not a loan in the sense of you know a personal loan or or a mortgage. It's like you, a payday loan. It's it's a flat fee, right? So you get the money uh, and you get a period of time to pay it back, up to twenty days. And depending on how quickly you pay it back, kind of determines what the effective interest rate is. Now. It basically the minimum effective interest rate on these things is roughly twenty percent. Now that's more than a credit card, right? That's more than most credit cards. For if you if you get the money and then get paid within sort of three or four days, you're talking about an effective interest rate of one hundred and twenty percent. This is all in the report. The tables are in there. It really spells this out really clearly. Um, and what it means is effectively you're paying not the 10% fee to the platform, but more like 11.5%. Now, some people might go, well, 11.5% is not too bad. That seems like a lot, right? When you're you're talking about people who are making minimum, minimum wage, in effect, in real terms, making minimum wage, to then lose 11% of that to a multinational foreign private equity company, through various ways of t- clipping the ticket. Like that just, it, it's- it's Disgusting. It is. And it's taxpayer money. Like that's the thing, right? So it's taxpayer money that the platform 
has some control over when it's released. Like it does because it controls some of its timings, right? And then it's basically saying, oh, but we'll give you the money. We'll front you the money that you're entitled to anyway from the taxpayer, uh, but we'll charge you a fee for it. Like I just can't get over how that's legal. And the platform, neither the neither Mabel, the platform that is connecting the worker and the uh, uh, NDIS client, nor their uh, bridging loan company, neither of those are registered with the NDIA. So they have no regulatory oversight. Like it's bizarre, but they're using taxpayer funds, moving taxpayer funds around to control workers, to, you know, facilitate people on the NDIS. I mean, I just, I think people will be shocked if they actually read this report to see how this system is being run. Yeah, I think, like I said, I recommend that absolutely everybody engaging with this space give it a read because reform is really necessary. And I just want to speak to the like the broader democratic obligation, like with the United States literally going to hell in a handbasket, and let's let's not. Uh, undersell this in any way. There is an organised movement of neo-fascists in the United States of America who are interested in extinguishing American democracy and Roe versus Wade and the and the overthrow overturning of that particular judgment is part of that yeah. plan. Australians really have to be aware of you know, what our collective responsibility is to democracy. And the NDIS is a really good example. This is a thing that we want. We want there to be a a service that allows people who live with disabilities to live with dignity and to be included in society and have the resources that that overcome the the, the social model of disability, you know, and give them choice and control over their lives. Exactly, you know, and this is the thing. Like the the idea of the social model of disability is that you know disability is only relevant if uh, a disability makes if society refuses to accommodate it. Like yeah. there's no there's no problem with being in in a wheelchair if you can still get around. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. and that's the point. If we make our society accessible, disability ceases to be a thing. Yeah. How, and how how we how we decide to design things determines who's allowed to participate. Really. Yeah, right? and design doesn't just mean physical buildings. No. It means accessibility, systems and-, systems, and all of those things. And I say that as a person who unfortunately lives with mental illness. Like I'm quite honest about the fact that I have major depressive disorder and sometimes it makes my life absolute hell. And, you know, like I want to live in a society where this horrible thing that I have to carry around is is something that doesn't stop me from working, that doesn't stop me from being a person that that we live in a world that accommodates that difference so I can continue to be, you know, productive and meaningful in the way that I lead my life. And, I mean, the thing is our responsibility as a community is to ensure that that fight is never finished, really, Mm. that things like if we want reform of the NDIS, if we want a more perfect system, it's not a question of throwing up our hands and going, it's really hard. It's a question of going, actually, here is a report that identifies the weaknesses in the system, that states solutions to these problems and challenges and how to manage the ongoing tensions. And let's be part of that. Read it. 
share like points from it with your local member. If you are a member of an organization, whether it's anything from a union, obviously you should be a member of a union to talk about how this is actually a really important equity issue in the workplace, in the home, in the community and everywhere else, you know, and we have to do that because America shows that there's not somebody who's going to defend democracy for you. Like there are a bunch of like, in America, like literally crazy far-right lunatics who are trying to destroy American democracy, whether it's through violence or stacking the Supreme Court or anything else, and it's use it or lose it. And, look, Van, I think your point is a really good one because, the, you know, the union movement's been very vocal about the issues around contracting, um, not just in the NDIS, but also, of course, we've seen the TWU talk about contracting issues in transport, food delivery, issues around TW uh, around uh, Deliveroo is a, is a classic example. You know, these are these are old fashioned capitalist models using new technology to exploit people, and that's really what this report. If they highlights. could get away with paying you nothing, they'd do it. And you know, the the impact on people is huge, not just working people. Like people will retire with hundreds of thousands of less in their in their retirement savings. They'll earn hundreds of thousands less over the course of their working life. People with a disability get worse outcomes. You know, the report looks at the international experience in the US, in the UK, mm. and finds that when there is a inconsistency of care, when there is a lack of training, when services are outsourced, when they are subcontracted, that in fact the the outcomes for clients are worse. They have less stability. They have less capacity to to progress and to participate actively in society. So it is it is all related and it does all interconnect. And I think one of the one of the really uh, interesting uh, uh, points around that is that if we if we don't f- come up with and resolve this issue, then the courts will. And in fact, there's a story in the report, a case study in the report, that looks at who is responsible in the case of somebody getting injured in someone's home when they are a contractor engaged through a platform. And in fact, some people have been found uh, quite legally liable for injuries in in the workplace, and someone's home can be a workplace, right? But the last government, the Morrison government, didn't deal with this issue. In fact- No way. The Morrison government (laughs) not dealing with an issue? Was asked about it in Senate estimates. Was asked who is responsible. When, when When a contractor through the NDIS walks into someone's home to provide them with services, who is responsible for the health and safety of that worker and the environment in which they're working- and they had to take it on notice. Oh, I was about to answered. say that. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I bet they took that one on notice. I'll have to take that on notice. I, I run these systems. It doesn't mean I understand how they work. <laughs> I'll take that on notice. It, I'll take that on notice, Jerry. There's really interesting acronyms. A PCBU, person conducting a business undertaking. And and it is a live issue. This is a multi-billion dollar program with hundreds of thousands of people involved as workers, hundreds of thousands of people involved as clients. And who is the person conducting a business or undertaking is a live legal issue. And it, and it will, you know, the, the irony in the report, uh, you know, I read this line, I just went, oh, this is so sad, that, that the 
the likelihood is that if somebody is engaging a contractor regularly to ensure they get that regular care, they can build up a program, they can work through it together, then they are more likely to be considered as the person conducting a business or undertaking than someone who's randomly picking contractors off a platform um, because there's no necessarily an ongoing relationship. And that's in the report, right? So there's all these parts of the system that for the last decade have just been allowed to kind of go, well, we'll just ignore that and maybe the court will sort it out. That's not what we want. We don't want, you know, we we have a democracy. We want decisions made in the interests, best interests of public policy, the best interests of the public, not legal legalistic arguments that are fought out over the course of five or six years where Australians with a disability and, and workers are pitted against each other in a court. Let's have some proper policy. I mean, the good news is we know that Labor is committed to reform in this space. So this report comes at a very timely uh, juncture. Yes, and but this is the thing. Governments, good governments, can only do as much as people give them social licence to do, and yeah. that's why, you know, a political engagement around the issue is so important. Absolutely. Because governments are about priorities, you know, and this is the thing, this is what I get really frustrated talking, why don't the government do something about this? Well, one, Liberal governments don't care. Two, there are lots of competing priorities for good governments, for Labor governments. There's a lot on the table. Everybody's putting their hand up trying to get stuff done. And it's the it's the weight of democratic movement behind an issue that ensures its prioritisation. You know, if you think this is important, engage, write a letter, Say, I have read this report and I am really disturbed. What are you going to do about it? Absolutely. And we'll share the report. We'll uh, Obviously, we'll include a link to the report in our email to our supporters uh, through our Buy Me A Coffee page. We'll also share links on our social media so you can check it out. And if you're tempted to throw a coin into our cup with Buy Me A Coffee, Ben and I are doing some video content today and you will learn that quite coincidentally the two of us are both dressed as characters from Star Wars. I have thoroughly enjoyed Ben giving his, you know, serious consideration of trade negotiations and the NDIS <laughs> with him in his Jedi robe and I'm sure he's most entertained by the fact I'm sitting here with an Ahsoka Tano hat on because it is very cold and the the flaps keep my ears warm. Indeed. but ben- These are things you probably won't understand unless you watch as much Star Wars as Ben and I, but we live in our nerddom and we like it here. We do. But, Van, talking about competing priorities for government, of course, today marks, and it's interesting that the uh, fire alarm, uh, the, the town's fire fire alarm system is going off in the background. I'm not sure if you can hear that because it is. we are at an, at an alarming point in the COVID pandemic, aren't we? We really are. It is an alarming point. Um, as you can tell from my voice and from Ben's, even though we were first testing positive to COVID over two weeks ago, we've still got the tail of it and we are pretty beaten up by it, I've got to say. Yeah. Um, lots of sleeping. I've had the brain fog and the memory loss and had the delight of finding out this week that the major depressive disorder that I live with is a comorbidity when it comes to COVID, enduring COVID symptoms. Hooray, hooroo. What a wonderful thing to find out. I'll share links to that study as well. But, of course, today Australia has crossed over 10,000 deaths from COVID. Uh, it's... It's interesting and disturbing to to put that into its proper context. So in February, we crossed over 5,000 deaths. 
So that's between February and July, we've had another 5,000. So it was 5,000 deaths from the onset of the pandemic in January 2020. Yes, yes, that's right. So they were deaths in total. Yes, deaths in total. So our our first death occurred in March 2020. Uh, We crossed 1,000 deaths uh, in uh, August of 2021. We then got to 5,000 by February of 2022, and we've hit 10,000 by July of 2022. So there has been quite significant uptick in deaths from COVID. And in fact, the Burnett Institute is suggesting that Australia may get as high as 15,000 deaths just in 2022. So when you think about that, that means we might have as many as Sixteen or 17,000 people having died from COVID and 15,000 of those having happened just in this calendar year. So Ben and I, having had the experience of COVID, like I'm, I'm quite sure that a large number of people listening to this have already have it, yeah. had it. Uh, our experience of it was that our symptoms were very different, even though we'd obviously caught it at the same time because we literally do everything together. And Ben was just taken out with joint pain, sweats, fevers, chills, you know, vomiting, nausea. I didn't have those. I had um, some of the worst sinusitis I've ever had, really struggling to breathe, locking myself in the bathroom, having steaming hot baths with the humidifier going to try and get any kind of relief, headaches, and I've had terrible, terrible fatigue and the fog with my memory has actually been, I mean, I rely on my brain, um, as you can imagine. And, you know, just, I forgot Adam Driver's name. I mean, he plays Kylo Ren (laughs) and I couldn't remember a Star Wars actor's name. And then I was really terrified and, you know, various other things. I've been very slow on it. I've been Mm. deep asleep. Um, I'd like to thank everybody who's accommodated our illnesses in various ways as well, getting back to the um, accommodation point, but it is really serious. And I think it's made Ben and I, I mean, we've always been, because I did have that friend who died of coronavirus in the first outbreak, that friend of mine in England, I think we've been quite meticulous about our care and masking and all those things. But, like, it's not over and there are calls for mask mandates to come back and if somebody's had coronavirus, I support those calls because I would not wish this on anyone. Yeah, look, it is. it has been a really rough couple of weeks for us personally but also just across the country we're seeing you know the the emergence of omicron 4 and 5 you know there's there's two strains that are so similar they just call them 4 and 5 uh we're seeing increased numbers of people uh requiring hospitalization uh we're seeing obviously increased death rates uh you know it is a it is a troubling time. And Mark Butler, you know, gave an interview to the ABC during the week where he said, you know, we're concerned about what we're seeing coming out of the, the Northern Hemisphere. Of course, they're in summer in the Northern Hemisphere. They're still having quite high rates. And in fact, places like Portugal, they've got higher rates now than they've had since the start of the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, I was disappointed and, I, and, I, and the Australian Union Movement made this point very strongly. The SDA, the nurses, the ACTU um, have, have come out quite strongly and said that Labor needs to reverse the Morrison government decision to end uh, the 
emergency pandemic support, the financial support that, that basically says if you need to isolate and you don't have access to paid pandemic leave, you can access financial support. Uh, and Mark Butler has not committed to do that. Um, so I encourage everyone to join your union. Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. Join your union because there are, we know, Australia disproportionately has people who do not have access to sick leave, who do not have access to financial support if they are sick and unable to work. And we do need to have isolation orders. You and I have isolated. We, you know, we've worn, I've had to wear an N95 mask for days after, you know, I'm legally allowed to not isolate because that's the right thing to do. But, you know, we're fortunate in that we can afford to do that. Some people, putting them in a position where they have to decide between paying the rent, putting food on the table and putting food on the table or going to work sick with COVID and not telling anyone. And let's face it, the current system is very reliant on the honesty of Australians, you know, doing a self-test, recording it and and You being shouldn't honest. have to make a decision between your financial survival and telling the truth. That's just, that's awful. So, you know, we would encourage... We would encourage uh, the Labor government to listen to the union movement on this because the unions are working with workers and, and, as I say, SDA, retail workers. We know retail workers disproportionately don't have access to sick leave. We know that healthcare workers disproportionately get exposed to COVID. You know, these are the groups of people saying, we need this. This, this helps limit the spread. And, frankly, we've... We've doubled the number of deaths, doubled the number of deaths in four months. Yeah. That is that is quite scary. Uh, COVID is now the leading cause of death in Australia. And frankly, there are some simple things we can do. Make sure people have access to paid time off when they're sick and need to isolate. Make sure that we wear masks. You know, I was shocked yesterday when we were we were in a shopping center and nobody had a mask on, not one Except person. us. Except us. Except us. I think I saw three people. And, and look, things were busy and it's good. That, you know, we want to get out there and do stuff and open up and, you know, it's good for the shops. I think you said it's the most people you'd seen in, in a mire in three years, yeah, right? Yeah, it is. It was the most, num- <clears throat> most number of people I've seen in a mire in a really long time. And that's good that people are back out and about. But it's we should do that in a safe way. It's not good if people are getting COVID. Like I can't. There was a there was a window of people getting COVID where we were all being told, "Oh, it's just a sniffle." Yeah. And the doctors who I've been dealing with since I got sick have been had told me they were like that variant. That window has passed. Yeah. Because everybody we know who's got it now has been very sick. Yeah. We have a friend who got diagnosed a couple of days ago who's been WhatsApping us with her symptoms and they're shocking and we've been through it and we know. And you just, it's not a little sniffle. It's exhausting. I'm exhausted doing this, yeah. quite honestly. Like this is really tiring and my concentration span, as you know, is, is, is not renowned for <laughs> for being particularly enduring and is now like less than that of a biscuit. Look, I, you know, I don't like to end the show on too much of a downer. The reality Our is- Our dog is cute. There are many things we can do. We can wear masks. We can ensure that people who need to isolate are given the financial support to do that. We can 
take simple precautions. We can make sure we're vaccinated. It still boggles my mind that roughly one in three Australians hasn't had a third shot. Just get it. Um, And credit to Mark Butler. He said that the Labor government is pushing that hard and working with the states to push on that. So I think that's important. Get those boosters. Take the basic precautions, you know, and join your union because this is increasingly now a workplace by workplace issue, industry by industry issue, where governments are saying, we're not going to mandate things. We're going to leave it up to people to decide. Well, you know, safety in the workplace is an everybody issue and obviously something as potentially life-threatening, life-threatening as COVID-19 is something that impacts everyone in the workplace and everyone in your community. So, look, there's lots we can do. Today we've talked about a wide range of issues ranging from international trade through to the NDIS. All of these things are things that Dog is bashing the microphone with his nose, um, that we as citizens and active participants in our union, active participants in our community can have a say on, can help shape, And of course, we hope that you'll continue to support The Week on Wednesday, like, share, leave comments, leave reviews on Apple, uh, and don't forget to join Van and I when Van will be remote on Wednesday for the next episode of The Week on Wednesday. Until then, as I always like to say, be kind to yourself and to each other. Bye. Bye.